Sometimes I'm very envious of my elders. I know that's something I probably shouldn't admit to, but it's true. And the reason is that I am just old enough to remember the church the way my elders do, bursting at the seams and full of life, but young enough that my adult experience has always been of a church in decline. And days like today make me very conscious of that fact as I read down the list of names of those who've departed and wistfully wonder what it would have been like to have met them in their prime. Because from what little I know through conversations and stories is that many of these saints strode like giants through these venues of faith, each serving tirelessly in kitchens, in boardrooms, in church halls, and Sunday schools, each giving generously of their time, talent, and treasure, each caring ceaselessly for their children, their elders, and all who were needy, each living out their discipleship with such energy and vitality that the work of the church wasn't just done, but it was a joy to take part in. And I can't help but feel that these people knew, in the way that we maybe don't, what it meant to be chosen, to be the children of God's covenant and exemplars of our call to walk blamelessly before God. And on days like today, I feel a bit sad that those days are gone, that too many of those saints have already passed. I'm quietly ashamed as I can't help but imagine the depths of their disappointment in our efforts to be the church, to uphold their legacy and carry forward the faith. A feeling I'm sure that one of, more than one of you might share. Now, in my case, I know I'm my worst critic and that uh, negative self-talk comes easily to me and despite my sunny disposition, I'm always anxious that things might go wrong. So I'm usually pretty quick to pick up on the first few signs that things aren't working the way I'd like them to, but I'm pretty sure at this point that even the most incorrigibly optimistic among us are starting to sense that something is off with the state of the church. And I'm not just talking about here at Hope, but clear across the country and across all denominations. And while the causes may differ from community to community, the symptoms we're experiencing are depressingly familiar. The first and most obvious is the huge generation gap that exists in our pews. Generations X, Y, and Z are barely represented, not only depriving us of their presence, but our communities of their passion and vision. This leaves us with disciples that are either A, tired, B, overworked, or C, both, making it very hard to keep up with our current commitments, let alone tackle anything new or exciting. We've also got to deal with a world that places very little value on faith. And much of that has to do with how many people have lost faith in the church on account of having been hurt, shunned, ignored, or belittled by the institutions of church or its representatives. They also have a skewed understanding of what the Gospels teach, seeing little value in these ancient myths and fables that, from their perspective, 
are completely out of touch with reality. Which means not only do we have to acknowledge and address the hurts we've caused, however unintentional they may have been, but must evangelize a generation that thinks they know what church is and already hate it. And this isn't helped by how disconnected we've become from the communities we serve. There was a time when if it happened in the North End, it'd be the talk of the church. We'd probably know the people involved personally and we'd have leapt into action. Now, most of us would be hard-pressed to name more than a dozen families who don't go to church, have little idea what's going on in our neighborhood, and never meet, let alone connect with, the people we say we're here to help. Instead, we fuss endlessly over worship, the decor of our building, and the preservation of our traditions at the expense of the faith and spirit that ought to animate them, estates that's left both us and our church impoverished in every sense of the word. And horribly aware that after two millennia of faith and decades of prosperity, when handed the torch, we fumbled the pass. Which is why I imagine if asked, very few of us would say we feel particularly chosen for anything aside from enduring these difficult times. Because what we feel at times is defeated. And when we hear the promise that God made Abraham to be our God, to make us great, to bless the world through us and make our descendants as numerous as the stars, we fall on our face and laugh. Because the notion is ridiculous. How could God work a wonder like that through us? Save our church like hope through us when it's only the prosperity of past generations that are keeping us afloat. If the saints we've named these past few years were here with us, then, well, maybe. But us? No. Not with all our flaws. Not after all our failures. Not with the fatigue of it all weighing us down and wilting our faith. Not even an enthusiastic yes on our part would allow God to make a miracle like that through tired and wounded people like ourselves. But I imagine Abraham felt much the same way when God spoke to him. Now, before we dive into the details of God's ridiculous promise, there are a few quick things that I'd like to clarify. First, Abram is not as old as you'd think. Why? Well, the Egyptian year, which the Hebrews used to keep track of time, started and ended with the flooding of the Nile, an event that happens twice each solar year. So instead of being 99, Abram was more like 50. And his wife Sarai was more like 45. Now, this may not seem old to us, but the average life expectancy in those days was more like 30, which meant Abram and Sarah were well past their best before date. And as far as conceiving and bearing a child, well, let me put it to you this way. My mother-in-law was in her early 30s when she became pregnant with my wife, Kathy, and the doctors advised her to go to bed for the next few months because she was so old. And that's only 40 years ago. 
This happened 3,500 years ago. Having your first child in your 40s was the stuff of legends. It just didn't happen. So when God promises to be the God of his children, to make them great, to bless the world through them and make his descendants as numerous as the stars, it's no wonder Abraham starts snickering. God's promise is ridiculous. Even more so when you consider the rocky relationship Abram's had with God up to this point. I mean, sure, when God calls, Abram goes, but the guy marries his wife off to Egypt's Pharaoh in an effort to save his own skin, thus endangering the promise. He caves into his wife's demands to have a child with her slave, Hagar, resulting in Ishmael, which, again, endangers the promise. Not to mention the moral repugnance of slave-owning, non-consensual sex, and that he later turfs out the poor kid and his mom into the wilderness, literally for the crime of being born. And if anything, his wife Sarah is worse, as the Bible heavily implies that she routinely and savagely beat her slaves and was the instigator behind many of Abram's more questionable choices. So... Not the nicest or most virtuous couple you've ever met. And Abram's trust in God and God's promises is clearly pretty shaky. And then there's the problem of the land that God is promising. How is God going to give this huge swath of land that Abram has no rights to and is already home to thousands of people to a wanderer, however wealthy, with no family or connections? impossible. And so are the terms and conditions of God's promise. Walk blamelessly before me? Abraham can't manage to walk blamelessly in the eyes of his neighbors, let alone abide by God's far more stringent moral standards. So from Abraham's point of view, what God is promising is ridiculous. What God is asking is ridiculous. So while he's devoted enough to fall on his face in the presence of God, he's also so disbelieving that he literally laughs in God's face. But as you probably already guessed, God is going to get the last laugh on old Abram. Because we all know what happens next, right? In a year's time, just like God's promised, Sarai, who's now Sarah, gives birth to a healthy baby boy. And Abram, who's now Abraham, names the boy Isaac, which in Hebrew means laughter, by the way, just like God said he would. Which just goes to show you that God has a very wry sense of humor. It also goes to show that God is not limited by the things that limit us. Abraham and Sarah were old and tired. Not a problem for God. They could sometimes be cruel, selfish, and dubious of God's promises to the point of infidelity. Yet, God worked with them anyway. And not only works with them, but blesses us through them, starting with Isaac. Right up until today, with the children in our pews being only the latest to inherit God's ridiculous promise a promise they've been keeping for nearly 4,000 years, even though it's hung by a thread on more than one occasion. A 
pattern that's played out again and again throughout the whole of faith history. Jacob and his family are starving due to famine. Well, through Joseph, God relocates them to Egypt where they live in prosperity. Egypt enslaves the nascent nation of Israel. So God sends Moses to free them and lead them to a promised land. The promised land is occupied. Along comes Joshua who conquers it for Israel. Jerusalem falls to Babylon and its people are sent into exile. Persia conquers Babylon and sends them back home. The Messiah, Jesus Christ, is arrested and crucified. God brings him back to life and the promise lives on. With each iteration, the danger is greater and the stakes get higher. But with each iteration, the promise God made us gets more and more ridiculous and yet every single time, God has come through for us, transforming our incredulous chuckles into joyous peals of laughter. And not a darn thing has changed from that day to this. We say to ourselves, we're old and we're tired. God says, I'll help you find the strength you need. We say we lack the virtue and faith of our forebears. God says, they had their flaws too, and I'll work through you just as I did through them. We say we haven't the resources to rescue our church. God says your forebears had nothing, and at times less than nothing. I'll enable you as I enabled them. And why? Because no matter what else we may be, we are still God's chosen people. The promise God gave us is still in effect. And no matter how ridiculous it may seem given our current circumstances, not once in 4,000 years has God ever let us down. That is why I believe. I must believe that God will inevitably overcome whatever barriers are blocking us from being a blessing because we still have so much blessing left to do. And we still have a role to play in the story of our faith. And if such trivial things like famines and plagues, wars and empires, impassable waters, humanity's sin and death itself couldn't keep God from keeping their ridiculous promises, what makes us think that the challenges we face can't be overcome? So I implore you, let's keep moving forward with God no matter how defeated we might feel, or just how laughable God's promises may seem right now. And trust that God, as they have done for so long for so many, will turn our own incredulous chuckles into joyous peals of laughter. And can you say amen to that?